David Chalmers is best known for articulating what he calls the hard problem of consciousness and for defending a property dualist position. I talked to Professor Chalmers in April 2004, just before he left Tucson to head a new centre for consciousness research at the Australian National University, and I began by asking him what his aim was in coining the term the hard problem. I didn't take myself to be taking any sort of massive original step in, in using this expression. In fact, it was a big surprise to me that it caught on in the way that it did. The context for this was a conference on consciousness actually here in Tucson, Arizona, back in 1994, which was one of the first big international interdisciplinary conferences on consciousness. In one of the early sessions, which is mostly on sort of philosophical foundations, I got up and said, okay, well, here we are at a conference on explaining consciousness, and already it's clear that people mean many, many different things when they talk about giving a theory of consciousness. There's many, many different phenomena that you might be trying to explain. So the first thing we want to do as philosophers is to sort them out. And here's a distinction which I find kind of useful. There are these phenomena which have got something to do with consciousness, the phenomena of discrimination and response and verbal report and so on, which although they're central and very much uh, worthwhile phenomena to study, we don't have the sense that they're getting at the central big mystery of consciousness. And then there's the, uh, you know, the big banana, the one we're all in the back of our minds really you know, hoping to solve. When we think about consciousness as a last frontier of science, this is consciousness as experience, as first-person subjective experience of the world. And that's the one that poses the big mystery. So I guess there was some sense that a lot of people were coming into their papers and talks at conferences like this, starting out by claiming to be taking on the big mystery of consciousness and then addressing a different problem. So because of that, I found the distinction kind of useful in sorting it out. Of course, then it, it just took on a life of its own. What I said in talking about the hard problem and the easy problems, I guess it just, for whatever reason, resonated. I mean, everyone knew what the hard problem was in the back of their minds. And I think having that expression around has now made it a lot harder for people to uh, ignore the problem in a way they might once have. If someone um, gives a theory which ends up only addressing some of the other phenomena, then someone's going to stand up and say, well, that's getting at the easy problems, but is it getting at the hard problem? So because of that, I think it's actually been quite a useful thing to have around. You mentioned there that the study of consciousness is an interdisciplinary one. It's one that neurologists and psychologists and many others are involved in, as well as philosophers. What specifically can philosophers contribute to consciousness research? You know, when I think about this stuff, I don't exactly think in terms of here's what the philosopher is going to do and here's what the neuroscientist is going to do and here's what the psychologist is going to do. We're all in this together trying to understand the phenomena. A lot of the time, a neuroscientist or a psychologist will turn around and say, well, the hard problem of consciousness is a philosopher's problem. You know, we're worried with gathering the data and explaining the functions and you guys can worry about these private subjective aspects of experience. On the other hand, sometimes philosophers are going to say, well, let's wait around for the scientists to come up with a solution to this. And my attitude is there's no point throwing this hot potato back to the other side all the time, but let's just try to see what we can all do in solving this thing together. Certainly, you know, what's neuroscience and psychology going to give you in addressing this question? In the first instance, what neuroscience and psychology and so on are really good at doing is coming up with mechanisms for the explanations of behaviors and of cognitive functions and so on. But as we've seen, this very often seems to leave the hard problem of consciousness unanswered. It explains how it is that we respond or how it is that information gets drawn together without touching on the question of experience. So the first thing that the philosopher can do is to you know, point out there's this further problem there. And then the question is, okay, well, what are the further things we can do to go beyond just the raw data of neuroscience and psychology and get to an explanation of consciousness? So, you know, my own view is that what the philosopher can do is analyze what the further problems are 
and analyze what are the extra things we need to do to explain them, what are the extra elements in a theory of consciousness going to look like in the most general sense. And then the philosopher, the neuroscientist, and the psychologist can all sort of join together in a sense in trying to fill in the specific details within a general framework. So in my work, I've tried to outline in very general terms what a theory of consciousness in a fairly abstract sense might look like. And then I see the project of coming up with such a theory as a cooperation between you know, the neuroscientists and the psychologists actually gathering specific data, doing specific experiments, and coming up with really specific principles, which will maybe somewhere down the line lead to a quasi-scientific theory of consciousness. Can we move on now to look at the framework theory of consciousness that you yourself propose? The view you advocate is one you characterize as a form of property dualism. Could you explain what you mean by that and how your view differs from a physicalist one? I take the physicalist view to be in the broad sense that everything in the world is ultimately derivative on or in some sense reducible to the aspects of the world that physics tells us about. Some physicists want to think of physics in some sense as providing us a theory of everything. I mean, it's not like physics tells you directly about tables and chairs and organisms and so on. But the sense is that all that stuff is a consequence of the basic properties and laws of physics. Physics will ground chemistry, and chemistry will ground biology, and so on from there. And if that works, that's a beautiful vision. If that works, then there's some sense in which physics is at the very least a theory of everything which is fundamental about the world. And I've gradually came around to the view that although this can explain a whole lot, this isn't going to explain consciousness. Nothing in the ontology of physics, the underlying properties of physics like space and time and mass and charge, the underlying laws of physics, is ever going to explain why consciousness is there. In some sense, this is always going to be left explaining the objective third-person aspects of organisms like their structure and their function. And it's always going to leave this explanatory gap to consciousness. Now, you know, the reasons for that are kind of are tricky, but let's say that's right, then I think the consequence has to be if the properties and laws postulated by physics can't explain everything, then there's more in the world than those properties and laws. We've got to go beyond them. And just as, say, it turned out that the mechanical view of physics of space and time and mass and laws of mechanics couldn't explain all the electromagnetic phenomena in the 19th century, people went beyond that to posit electromagnetic charge as an irreducible aspect of the world and laws of electromagnetism. Likewise here. I think you have to postulate some further properties, namely properties of consciousness as an irreducible fundamental aspect of the world and laws that go along with those. So the sense in which my view is property dualistic is it says there are more fundamental properties in the world than the fundamental properties posited by physics. Maybe the new property is something like consciousness itself, or maybe it's some other property, call it proto-consciousness, which when added to the mix will give you consciousness. And then, of course, there have to be further fundamental laws which connect that to the laws of physics. Once we have that in the mix, then I think we have the grounds for a theory of consciousness, just as once we have electromagnetic charge and electromagnetic laws in the mix, we have the grounds for an explanation of electromagnetism. You mentioned there the beauty of the idea that everything can be reductively explained in terms of a small number of basic physical properties and laws. Wouldn't the introduction of new properties and laws of consciousness spoil this elegant physical picture? It's certainly true there's something beautiful, elegant, and simple about the fundamental physicalist picture of the world, a few basic properties and a few basic laws. And I'm very much attracted by that myself. So I agree, you don't want to tamper with that in a way which would ruin it or destroy its elegance or its simplicity. I mean, if one takes consciousness seriously, one is ultimately forced to say there has to be something more than that. But one hopes that the extra thing which is more is also going to be quite elegant and quite simple. 
if it turned out that our fundamental, the picture of the universe, was something like the following, then I think one might have reason to worry if it turned out that you know, we had three basic laws of physics and five basic properties of physics, and then on top of that, a million properties of consciousness and 2,000 ad hoc laws saying whenever you have this brain, you get this state of consciousness, and this brain, you get this state of consciousness. That would be a, an ugly ad hoc picture of the world. So my hope is that ultimately it might be possible to integrate consciousness with uh, physical theories in a way which isn't ugly and ad hoc like that. Somebody once said that one of the uh, fundamental goals in physics is to come up with a set of fundamental laws so simple you could write them on the front of a t-shirt. The thought is, well, maybe we can come up with some fundamental principles governing consciousness, which is so simple, we could write them on the front of a t-shirt too. So I see this very much as a challenge for a science of consciousness. But right now, I don't see a reason why it couldn't end up that the principles governing consciousness could be very simple and very elegant and integrate with our elegant physical theories of the world. Property dualists are sometimes accused of deliberately cultivating a sense of mystery around consciousness in order to preserve the sense that human beings are special and not just soulless physical mechanisms. What do you say in response to that? I think we have to distinguish the view and the motivations for the view. One could be a dualist for many different kinds of reasons. Some are sent there for religious reasons. Religion gives us reason to believe in an immortal soul, so therefore it has to be non-physical. Um, other people are perhaps are sent there because they think there has to be something special about the human being and the, uh, the human experience. And those motivations are simply not my motivations at all. I'm not especially religious or especially spiritual. I was just led here by saying, here's a phenomenon that we need an explanation of. What kind of explanation is going to work? And it turned out, for systematic reasons, that the kinds of purely physical explanations weren't going to work. And the view you end up with on this picture isn't necessarily going to be one which somebody who wants to preserve the specialness of human beings is going to necessarily like. I've become more and more attracted to views on which consciousness goes very deep in the natural order. It's not just uh, human beings that have consciousness. Certainly, most animals, I think, have some kind of consciousness. And it may indeed go very deep, perhaps right down to some quite fundamental levels of existence. So this is probably going to be anathema to someone who wants to make human beings special. On the other hand, it is the case that people who have those motivations and people from religious backgrounds and so on might find something attractive in the sort of view which I'm putting forward without going all the way. You mentioned that you were led to your position on consciousness by systematic reasons. And one of the key arguments you discuss in your book and elsewhere is the conceivability argument, which turns on the claim that it is conceivable that there could be zombies. Could you sum up that argument for us? A zombie in the philosophical sense is a being which is a physical duplicate of a normal conscious being, but lacks consciousness. So they're distinct from the zombies you see in, in movies, which go around behaving in strange ways and eating brains and so on. So these philosophical zombies are indistinguishable from ordinary human beings. Now, few people think that zombies actually exist in our world, but the question is whether the idea even makes sense. And I think there's pretty strong prima facie reason to think the idea at least makes sense. I can talk to somebody, I could talk to one of my colleagues, and I can raise the question, are they conscious or not? I mean, I believe they're conscious, but am I certain they're conscious? It seems there's no contradiction in supposing they're not conscious. And I could do a brain scan of them and a body scan of them and know all about their brains and so on. And again, I might believe they're conscious, but again, it seems to me that no amount of physical information in some sense proves that they're conscious. It's always going to be coherent or consistent to suppose that they have all that physical structure without consciousness. So that's roughly what we mean in saying that zombies in this sense are conceivable. There's no conceptual contradiction in supposing that other people are zombies, even though we might have reason to believe that in actual fact they're not 
And then from there you can go on to say, well, given that these things are conceivable or logically coherent, you can then raise questions like, well, aren't they in some sense metaphysically possible? Again, not necessarily possible in the sense that they could exist in the actual world, but to use one metaphor, you know, couldn't God in creating the world have created the world with zombies in it? It's a consistent, conceivable idea. It seems like it's in God's powers to create a world that's physically just like ours, but that has less consciousness in it, or perhaps has no consciousness at all. And that suggests that to get consciousness into our world, God has to take an extra step right, beyond getting all the physical stuff set up right, has to make sure this is not a world with zombies, but a world with conscious beings. You can think of that as one basic proto-argument against the physicalist view of the world and for the property dualist view that you need further properties in the world to make sure that consciousness is there. So the argument has two key premises. One, that zombies are conceivable, and two, that if something is conceivable, then it is possible, at least in the metaphysical sense. Now, people have challenged both of those premises. Let's start with the first. Can we really form a clear conception of a zombie? After all, zombies are supposed to behave exactly as we do. So if my zombie twin describes its reactions on seeing a beautiful sunset or listening to a moving piece of music, it will say exactly what I would. Is it really coherent to suppose that, all the same, it is not actually experiencing anything? I think there's a strong prima facie case that zombies are conceivable. Now, sure, these zombies are have all kinds of remarkable behaviours and make all the verbal reports of consciousness. That suggests very strongly that if we discovered one of these things in our world, we'd think they were probably conscious. But I don't think it does much to remove the coherence of supposing they're not. I mean, I could talk to you and I could listen to everything you say about consciousness and all your reports of your consciousness and so on. I could say, OK, he's probably conscious. But again, there's going to be no contradiction in supposing that you're not conscious. And I'm always going to be able to raise the question, well, how do I know for sure? Uh, that he's conscious. We could have complicated computers that come up with all those verbal reports, with all this processing, and we'd still be worried. So a strong prima facie case, I think, given all this, that zombies are conceivable. Still, it's a reasonable strategy to come back at this point and say, maybe there's some subtle contradiction that you haven't noticed yet. Maybe once you really conceived of all that processing and all the glorious detail that goes on in the human brain, then you'd eventually come to realize that it just couldn't fail to be conscious. As a matter of a conceptual principle. Once we really think it through, the conceivability will go away. What I've done to argue against this is to say, well, for this to work, there's ultimately going to have to be some kind of conceptual hook between the concept of consciousness and the underlying physical concepts, concepts of all those physical processes, to bring in the contradiction, to bring in a conceptual entailment from all that physical stuff to consciousness. And ultimately, then, you've got to look at what's in our concepts of all that physical processing. I think it's ultimately a bunch of physical structure and dynamics. What would the concept of consciousness have to be like in order for it to support such an entailment that would lead to a contradiction? Ultimately, our concept of consciousness would have to be a concept of something sort of structural or functional. For example, it could be the concept of playing a certain functional role in the production of behavior or of certain processing. If our concept of consciousness had that form, then I think the concept of a zombie would be contradictory. And then I just think there's very good reasons to think our concept of phenomenal consciousness is not a functional concept. It's not just the concept of something which does something, which responds in a certain way, which reports uh, in a certain way. So somebody taking this position, I think, is ultimately going to be not fully taking consciousness seriously. But I think ultimately the only way to make zombies inconceivable is to take a pretty hard line in the way that, say, Dan Denner has done and said there isn't really any further hard problem of consciousness. 
over and above the functions. Now, more power to Dan Dennett for taking that line, but I think that's a line which many, many people think is one that just doesn't do justice to the phenomena here that need explaining. I mean, there are the functions that need explaining, the reports and the responses, and there's the subjective experience that suggests very strongly our concept of consciousness isn't this functional concept. If that's the case, I think through a relevant chain of reasoning, it's always going to turn out that zombies are conceivable. Okay, so there's a case for thinking that zombies are conceivable. But what about the second premise? That if something is conceivable, then it's metaphysically possible. Is that true? Does the fact that we can imagine something really show that it could exist? Doesn't it just tell us something about our powers of imagination? Well, this is one of the most interesting and controversial questions in this area. And in the last few years in the philosophical literature, there's been a lot of going back and forth on this and people trying to understand this relationship between conceivability and possibility better. I think the first thing you need to do is to realize that conceivability doesn't mean just one thing, and even possibility doesn't mean just one thing. So I wrote a paper where I tried to sort out about eight different meanings of conceivability and different senses of possibility, which I won't try to go through those now. You'll be glad to hear. The thought was, though, that you articulate the right sense of conceivability and the right sense of possibility. There is a very plausible thesis here to be had, that when something is conceivable in the relevant sense of not being able to be ruled out through any amount of a priori reflection, then there's going to be some kind of metaphysical possibility nearby. Again, not a natural possibility, not something which could actually exist, but a metaphysical possibility. Now, metaphysical possibility, of course, is a much broader notion than mere natural possibility. There's no reason to think conceivability should tell us about what actually exists. But this is metaphysical possibility. It's a space of ways things could have been. And I think, you know, there is a link between our imagination and our powers of reasoning and ways that the world could have been. And now, some people think there are counterexamples here. For example, you can conceive of certain complex mathematical statements being true or false, but they couldn't really both have been true or false. So one thing you're going to want to do then is to articulate the thesis in the right way so that it excludes those counterexamples. And I think if you idealize the relevant notion of conceivability by saying things couldn't be ruled out by arbitrary reasoning, then we have a tougher notion of conceivability, which might link to possibility. Then there are various examples which came in from Saul Kripke and his work on it being necessary that water is H2O, while it's still being conceivable that water is not H2O. Now that raises, again, a bunch of very tough technical issues. But I think, again, once you articulate the right notion of conceivability, there's a way of understanding it so those aren't counterexamples. So the upshot to all this is that I think you can put forward an attenuated conceivability to possibility thesis. So there are no clear counterexamples anywhere to this thesis. In all these other domains, whether it's water or mathematics or whatever you like, what's conceivable, there's very good reason to think, is metaphysically possible. And then I just say, well, we should apply the same principle, which seems to work in all these cases, to the case of consciousness. Now, at this point, someone can come back and say, well, either there's something wrong with this thesis in the first instance, even in other domains, and then we can argue about those, or they can say there's something special about consciousness. So even though that principle works in these other cases, it doesn't work for consciousness. And in practice, I think opponents of this thesis and materialists are going to uh, divide between those different uh, strategies, and that leads to a lot of discussion. But still, I think if you just go by the principles that seem to work in other cases, things come out pretty good in the case of consciousness for uh, the sort of arguments which I'm trying to put forward. May we turn now to the problems that property dualism faces? The most serious of these, I think, concerns the causal role of consciousness. If the physical world is causally closed, then how can a non-physical consciousness have any effects within it? 
Yeah, so this is a very tough question, and many people think that this is one of the best reasons to believe in physicalism. We've got this beautiful, autonomous, causal network in the physical world. All physical effects are produced by physical causes. So wouldn't consciousness have to be physical to produce such effects? So one of the big problems for any non-physicalist view has always been, how does consciousness get into the loop, so to speak? I don't know the answer to this question, but I think there are about three possible options in responding to it. The first one is simply to deny that consciousness has any effects. This is the epiphenomenalist view. Consciousness is outside the physical network. The physical network is causally closed, and consciousness doesn't have any effects within it. Now, many people find this view counterintuitive. We find it very intuitive that consciousness has physical effects, but I'm not sure that there's anything which proves that consciousness has physical effects. I mean, you could make the point that we're exposed to all these regularities between consciousness and the physical world. Therefore, we naturally suppose or infer that there's a causal connection there, when in fact there's mere regularities of a common cause. And so one thing I've tried to do in some of my writings is to make the case that there's no fatal objections to epiphenomenalist as a view. It ought to be regarded as a possibility. I think the biggest objection to epiphenomenalism is not that it's so counterintuitive, it's rather that it leads to an unintegrated picture of the world, of that closed physical network and consciousness dangling outside it. So one option is to endorse epiphenomenalism, to deny that consciousness has physical effects. What are the other possibilities? The other two possibilities are ones which integrate consciousness a bit more with the physical world and maybe give it more of a role to play. The second possibility then is an interactionist dualism, which is a little bit like the view that Descartes held in saying that consciousness is outside the physical network but still gets in and makes a causal difference to physical processes. It shoves the physical stuff around, if you like. Now, to do that, you have to deny the causal closure of the physical world and say there are actual gaps in physical processing which consciousness fills. Many people think that's incompatible with science because physics has begun to tell us that the world is causally closed. I think there's something to this, but still, if you look at our best physical theories, these include quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is quite ill-understood, and there are places in quantum mechanics that suggest there are quite big jumps some of the time in physical systems, big unexplained jumps. Some people have hypothesized this has something to do with consciousness, and indeed, if you look at quantum mechanics, they say these jumps have something to do with measurement. You think measurement, observation, consciousness. It's at least a natural link. So the second view, which I see as a viable option, is to exploit some things which are going on in quantum mechanics to give a role for consciousness in affecting physical processes. I don't know that that's right. I mean, it's a very, very speculative view. But I don't think it's the case that it's ruled out by science in the way that some people think that these sorts of dualistic views are. It's just a matter of quantum mechanics is quite mysterious in this respect. That does, I think, leave room for consciousness to play that role. So that's option two. Okay, so option two is interactionism. Consciousness affects physical processes, perhaps at the quantum level. What's option three? Option three is the view that says consciousness, although irreducible, isn't exactly outside that physical causal network at all. Consciousness instead is deeply tied to the intrinsic nature of the physical world. And this goes back to you know Immanuel Kant, if not further, and Bertrand Russell. We don't really know the intrinsic nature of entities out there in the physical world. The physical world is always revealed to us via its appearances, its effects on us. Take a bunch of physical particles. We understand their relationships to each other and the causal structure of this network out there. But do we really know what these particles are 
in themselves, as Khan said, we know the nature of the thing in itself, the ding an sich, or as Russell said, we understand the ex extrinsic properties of physical entities, but not their intrinsic properties. So that's a big metaphysical mystery. What's the intrinsic nature of entities out there in the physical world? Combine this with another metaphysical mystery. We have these intrinsic properties of consciousness. How are we going to place them with respect to the physical world? Well, Russell's idea was maybe we can solve both these problems at once. Say, it turns out that the intrinsic properties of the physical world are either precisely the properties of consciousness or certain other special intrinsic properties which are very closely related to the properties of consciousness. So on this view, which I sometimes think of as the panpsychist view for consciousness everywhere or the panprotopsychist view for proto-consciousness everywhere, wherever you have fundamental physical entities in the world, like physical particles, they have an extrinsic nature and an intrinsic nature. That intrinsic nature might be closely tied to consciousness itself. So consciousness or proto-consciousness spread throughout the physical network. Now, if you take this view, there's no danger of consciousness being epiphenomenal, being outside the network. In some sense, consciousness is going to be present at the ground of all physical causation. It's going to be consciousness, which in some sense is doing the work. When one particle hits another particle, that particle is somehow intrinsically constituted by consciousness or proto-consciousness. It's right in there, in the causal network. Likewise, when I perform an action, certain intrinsic properties in my brain are going to be tied to consciousness, and in some sense, that's really doing the work. So in this view, consciousness is right there in the causal network. Now, of course, you know, this view is speculative. The other two views are both very speculative, too. So I don't know which of these three views is correct, and I go back and forth myself a bit between them. I think each of them, though, has some chance of being correct. If you're really worried about finding a causal role for consciousness, I think you should go for the second and look to quantum mechanics, or go to the third and look to the intrinsic nature of the physical world. But these are very much, I think, open questions for exploration in the coming years. We haven't yet got to the bottom of them. Well, the three views you have outlined seem to be coherent, but they are all rather speculative and in some ways counterintuitive. And someone might say that physicalism, for all its problems, is simpler and less counterintuitive, and therefore preferable. How do you respond to that? Well, I can certainly see uh, one being attracted to physicalism on the grounds that it seems you know, simple, plausible, conservative, and so on. My view is that there's nothing wrong with a theory being counterintuitive per se. I think one moral of 20th century science is the physical world is really a very strange place. So it shouldn't be a constraint on our theories that they be completely conservative and intuitive. Panpsychism and interactionist dualism and so on might have some counterintuitive elements, but no more so than other theories in physics. So that's not exactly a strike against them. But now the question is, well, maybe physicalism, though, is even less counterintuitive, so we ought to believe in it. Again, I just come back to the basic constraint which guides all my theorizing about this is our scientific and philosophical theories have to explain the phenomena. They've got to explain the manifest phenomena that we have reasons to believe in. And I've just been led through systematic reasons to believe physicalist views, they're not just counterintuitive, they just can't explain the phenomena. Now, I guess you could just deny the existence of consciousness or say there's nothing here that needs explaining. That would be more than counterintuitive, that would just be crazy. So the fundamental argument for physicalism you might think of as Occam's razor. Go for the simplest view. Don't multiply entities without necessity. Dualism, you might think, multiplies entities without necessity. But if what I've been saying here is right, there is necessity. I mean, if you can't explain the phenomena given entities A, B, and C, then there's necessity to bring further elements into the picture. And that's, I think, what one ends up doing on the property dualist view. You say, well, in this case, reluctantly 
and conservatively, we can't explain the phenomena given the basic entities of physical theory, so we need some new entities in there. If the theory ends up being counterintuitive, that's okay, but at least we have the materials we need to explain the phenomena. You mentioned Daniel Dennett earlier. Your views and his could hardly be more different. Dennett denies that there is any hard problem of consciousness and argues that once we have solved all the so-called easy problems, explaining the functions, responses and reports associated with consciousness, then no further problem will remain. You think that we could solve all those problems without even touching the really big problem of consciousness. This is a very deep disagreement. What does it stem from? Does it just come down to a fundamental clash of intuitions? Well, I respect Dennis' position because I think he bites many of the bullets that you need to bite if you want to have a strong, robust, physicalist view. I think ultimately the only really coherent and consistent way to be a physicalist is to deny there is any special problem of consciousness and the sense that there is a special problem is a kind of illusion. And that's Dennett's view. And he pushes that view pretty strongly. My own view is this view is just uh, not adequate to the data, not adequate to the evidence that we have about us being conscious and there being something here to explain over and above the behavior and the functions. But you ask, where does this disagreement stem from? I think it probably stems with a different kind of ultimate methodology. Dennett himself has described his view as a kind of third-person absolutism. It's sort of deferential to science and to observational data in that all we ultimately have to explain are phenomena that are observable from the third-person point of view. That's what science has to explain, and that's the ultimate arbiter of what's real. So you observe a system from the outside, you look at its responses, its reports, and so on. Those are what you get from the third-person point of view, and that's ultimately everything that needs explaining. If that was right, I think Dennis' position would be the correct consequence. But I'm going to disagree with him at that fundamental starting point. I think there are more data. There are more things that need explaining than what's observable from the third-person point of view. In particular, in the case of consciousness, I think there are first-person data, first-person data of subjective experience that aren't simply reducible or straightforwardly translatable into just the problem of explaining certain verbal reports and so on. Dennett here thinks, okay, explain the reports, explain the responses. That's all the data. I say no there are further data, there is something here observable, distinctively from the first-person viewpoint, which is one of the things that we need our theories to explain, and which is the primary thing that we need a theory of consciousness to explain. So I think it's that fundamental starting point, which is really the fundamental difference here. And I think I'm just following, in a sense, good scientific methodology, which is explain the things that need to be explained. So does it follow that we are never going to make any progress in resolving this dispute? If it's a difference of starting point, then I guess in a hundred years' time there will still be people who adopt Dennett's starting point and people who adopt your starting point, and they will remain as opposed as ever. Isn't that a little pessimistic? I think it's quite likely. I mean, maybe it's pessimistic, but I think it's quite likely that 200 years' time there are going to be people who take a very deflationary view of consciousness and say there's no special problem, and there are going to be people who say there is some special problem and maybe we'll have made some progress in solving it. But one thing we've learned is that the biggest philosophical questions, disputes about those, don't go away. And philosophical progress doesn't consist in resolving these disputes for once and for all. It consists more in understanding them. And in the case of consciousness, I suspect that no result that's going to come out of neuroscience, for example, is going to settle the issue between Dennett and me. But what philosophical progress is going to consist in is understanding what this difference in starting points, where it leads you to. So, okay, there's a fundamental difference in starting point between Dennett and me, which I suspect isn't going to be very easily resolved at all. 
But what Dennett's work is doing is bringing out where his starting point leads you to, what it commits you to, what's the best theory of consciousness that takes this broadly deflationary starting point. Whereas on my side, what's going on is, okay, well, just say you do take consciousness seriously in this fashion, and just say you do accept this starting point, then where are you led? So it's a kind of conditional structure, if you like. You don't get away from those fundamental differences in starting points, but still we make progress all the same. This does have the nice feature that I can at least look at the work that someone like Dan Dennett is doing and say, well, this isn't completely worthless. This is actually quite interesting. And if you take that starting point, where does it go? I think there's fundamental reason to reject the starting point. So ultimately, the resulting view is incorrect. But that's not to say that it's valueless or worthless, because it does, I think, lead to a better understanding in the landscape of options. Could I round this interview off by asking you about the more immediate future? There has been a boom in consciousness studies in recent years, partly inspired by your own work. How do you see consciousness studies developing? If we were doing this interview in 2020 rather than 2004, what do you think we'd be talking about? It's hard to say exactly where it's going to go. I mean, the boom in the study of consciousness hasn't just been in philosophy. It's been in neuroscience and psychology and other areas. Certainly, I think the neuroscience is going to continue to develop very rapidly. And our understanding of the neural correlates of consciousness will be much better in psychology, All kinds of interesting new phenomena are coming along. I think we're going to have better cognitive theories of the basis of consciousness. In philosophy distinctively, though, my sense is that right now the area where people are making the most progress is understanding what we might call the character of consciousness, its structure and its phenomenology and so on. So in particular, there's started to be a big boom in the last few years of understanding the connection between consciousness and intentionality or representation, the way that consciousness represents the world. And this is where a lot of my own very recent work has been focusing on understanding the way that consciousness reaches out to the world and represents it. This isn't so much a question about the mind-body problem. What's the relationship between consciousness and physical processes? This is a question about the intrinsic character of consciousness in its own right. One thing that's nice about this is it's a question in which people who might disagree on some of these fundamental questions about whether consciousness is physical or not can still make progress on. Other questions like the unity of consciousness is something I've thought about quite a lot. Consciousness has this unified nature of all these experiences present to a subject, reaches out and represents the world and so on. So if you ask me in 20 years time, I mean, I hope we've made progress on the mind-body problem and that we've, we've got a better understanding of the options, the alternatives and where it's going. I don't think we'll have a final theory of consciousness, a final scientific or philosophical theory. I, I hold out hopes for, you know, a century down the line there. But if you ask me about 20 years' time, I guess in 20 years' time, I would hope that we will have a much better understanding of the intrinsic character of consciousness, one which might then be able to play a big role in helping to bootstrap and constrain further theories of consciousness's ultimate nature. Well, that's an optimistic note on which to finish. Thank you very much, Professor Chalmers. It's been great to talk to you. Well, thanks a lot. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.